All right, here we are. Gabriel here, host of What a Curious Idea, and I'm here with a really close family member, Ms. Tabitha Hardy. Tabitha, why don't you say hello to everybody? Hello, everyone. Tabitha, what do you do? I am a licensed master social worker in the state of Texas. And what, what kind of work do you do for the social and the, in, the, in that context? Um, currently, at this time, I am involved in the domestic violence mm. genre. All right. Uh, so tell me about your experience with this mess in COVID, because I can't imagine that it's been the easiest thing for you guys in the social field. Yeah, I mean, and it's all the research that's still coming out is still obviously emerging since um, COVID really hit the states um, at the start of this year. But um, to speak on to specifically my role in the domestic violence field, I work in direct client services in an emergency uh, setting. So it's pretty heavy in the crisis intervention side. Um, I'm more on the side of intervening with victims that are immediately fleeing. Um, and so at the start of all of the COVID uh, pandemic, we kind of expected an immediate surge of um, clients coming into our shelter, but that didn't happen right at the start. It kind of was weird. It was like a phenomenon and it, and it lagged on, but the more research that I continue to do at the start of all this, the more that I was getting my own knowledge and insight about this, because this is like a new, you know, this is a new area. Right. Um, and it sounds so simple and obvious, but really coming into knowledge about the true reality of where our victims are living with their aggressors, whether that's an intimate partner, a family member, like a brother, a sister, a step sibling, you know, sometimes victims have roommates that are, um, that they're being perpetrated by. So we service all victims, not just those involved in intimate partner violence. Okay. Um, so as going back to us, this research was doing the research and looking into everything. Um, I started to realize that victims can't get away. Victims were not able to get away to make yeah. the phone calls, to call into our hotline, to come in to shelter service. Um, obviously, um, we can only service a certain amount. Each shelter in our Metroplex or anywhere across the nation can only service a certain type or a certain amount of clientele at a time. Um, but the re real reality is those numbers are super staggering, right? And so I, I can only imagine, yeah. Yeah, and so we see very small portion of the intimate partner violence or other family violence. Um, for the sake of this entire interview, I'm just going to mostly refer to it as intimate partner violence or either directly as domestic violence, which is more commonly used broadly and that's a little outdated now. Um, but I'll use both of those interchangeably, interchangeably to mean kind of the same thing for those that are being perpetrated by any type of other individual. Right. Um, Got it. Including sex um, couples too. But it was interesting at the start of all of it because, you know, the hotlines were ringing pretty much like normal, um, like they typically have been. We just did not see the high frequency like we were expecting. And that came probably two months into 
I would say shelter in place probably happened in March for Texas. That happened mid-March, right? The, or the second week of March. I think it was March 16th or 17th. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, about two months into that, then we started, it started hitting a little bit more heavy, um, a little bit more frequently. Victims were finally getting the moment to get away um, from their perpetrator and uh, to seek help. Um, most of our calls come in through our hotline and they're either referred by police officers, hospitals, um, which if you think about it, a lot, what I see too, a lot of our victims don't even come into contact with either of those type of professionals when they're encountering perpetration. Um, so, so they don't come into contact with uh, the social workers. Is that what you're saying? Well, the police and hospitals. So a lot of our mm. victims won't even call to make a legal report or follow report um, because a lot of times that will escalate the situation. Then you've got other factors like if you have um, citizenship status that will deter you too. If you have any kind of outstanding warrants um, or any kind of pretty much previous negative experience with law enforcement is not going to encourage you to go and seek safety from those that you've also been perpetrated. If you've previously been perpetrated by law enforcement, it's not necessarily aiding victims in, in that sense. So not always do we have our victims trying to go back to full picture here. They're not always reaching out and calling 911 immediately, and they're not always going to the hospital to get their injuries addressed because they too know that if professional staff in a medical setting see or kind of assume that there's some type of abuse going on in any kind of accord, not just with children, but adults, including, um, they're mandated reporters. And so they're, they're required to file and report that too. So then your question may be, well, how do your victims come into service then if they're not going to the police officers, if they're not going to the hospitals, um, especially if this is the first time something's happened or it's been going on for quite some time and it's escalating to the point where they're feeling they could reach out. I see a lot of um, victims reach out to uh, family members or friends. They'll start to make outcries that way. Um, and sometimes those friends and family members will have resources and share those with our victims. And so they come in to contact with our emergency service that way, you know, which is kind of just around the professional setting of law enforcement and hospitals. Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, it's like a workaround uh, instead of going directly to it, right? Yeah. 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 So, um, so most of those calls will come in over the phone through a hotline a lot of the times, or if they have access to their own personal cell phone or computers, if it's not being monitored, um, they'll do research on their own and look up things online and, uh, find a national hotline number and share that, uh, or contact, explore that and find us and contact that and everything and get referred to us. Cause there's several, there's quite, quite a few, um, domestic violence shelters in our state. Um, and especially in Dallas too, right? I, I Googled it. I just Googled domestic violence because I figured it was domestic violence, but, uh, have since learned that it's family violence and I saw several different shelters in the County. So, yes. yeah, I know that yours is one of them, uh, and there are several, so many more, but uh, does the hotline belong to you guys, or does it, like, connect you with a specific shelter, like, at random? That's a really great question. It's a actual, so there is a national domestic violence hotline. Right. Um, and they actually have a website, www.thehotline.org. Yeah, I saw that. Um, 
Yeah, or 1-800-799-7233. And that's a national way to get referred in to more of a local um, shelter for emergency service. Or um, if you come into my particular agency, we have our own personal hotline to every agency does. Um, but a lot of the times when victims are researching online, they will find more commonly the national hotline information. And then it kind of just funnels its way down on a referral basis because that's pretty much what the hotline is for. It's for immediate crisis intervention. Right. Um, those that are fleeing don't know what to do. They do intense safety planning over the phone, preparing to leave because um, statistically leaving is the most dangerous time uh, for victimization and the mor- the mortality rate kind of increases heavily too. So a lot of victims are actually um, that have been murdered in the past due to intimate partner violence issues. Um, they had actually already left the relationship or were in the process of leaving or planning to leave. Are they staying with family members or are they like on the road trying to live on the street with their kids or anything? Like what do um, you are see? You ta- are you talking those that have passed from perpetration? Maybe not even the people that, uh, that pass away from it. I mean, more or less the people that are fleeing from their, uh, from the perpetrator. These, these folks, what, what, how are like are they getting caught by the perpetrator or like what how does this work yeah so um that was another point that i was going to tie in is you know not obviously going back to the reality is you know compared to the clientele base that we can actually service in terms of numbers versus the reality and it being astronomically larger it's because i can't speak for all of those individuals but i know that Many, you'll notice too when you're doing your research for domestic violence shelters that a lot of them have outreach offices. And so a large portion of clientele are going through outreach service because they are actively either trying to make the relationship work um, or they're getting ready to plan to leave and they want support or they just want counseling, want someone to hear them out. So those are those tend to be clients that are either more economically situated and can remain in their community and flee aggressor, maybe don't have high risk or safety concerns. Um, and so they can leave a, leave aggressor, go live in the community, continue to work, move to a new living situation mm-hmm. and not be harassed by that person later by the perpetrator later on down the road. Um, but then sometimes you see those, like I said, that go to, through outreach for counseling services are avidly trying to make their relationships work um, and remain with the, their aggressor in the same home and still seek those counseling services, which I know is pretty taboo um, to our culture here in America when we talk about these things. I've got a lot of crazy looks when working with clients and I talk to regular muggles and that are and muggles I'm referring to just <laughs> any ordinary person outside of the realm of social work that are and also like fellow social workers in our field, you know, they everyone has their own personal moral system and beliefs and then you have your professional set of one right and i operating under my professional set is offering service to any victim and supporting that person through whatever stage of change and whatever stage of change that they're currently at and they're ready for that change and moving forward because it's their life not mine and also realizing that when victims are not ready to leave and you're asking to leave if you're urging them to leave they could leave prematurely and it could cost them their life or it could really damage um, relationships with their own children especially if they have children with their perpetrator right you're getting into legal issues and all kinds of 
all kinds of issues. Like we could spend all day talking about the dynamics of all that, but I just really want to touch base on the reality of how much larger, because domestic violence tends to be like this taboo, only reserved for emergency shelters kinds of things sometimes. And it's very much well and alive. And all of our neighbors are not all of our neighbors, but most of our neighbors around us are going through these things. Um, because abuse is not just physical, it's not just emotional, it's mental and it's financial. Yeah. Too. So, and that's what we're seeing heavily um, right now is the financial aspect because people are losing their jobs. Um, that alone is enough to agitate people, right? Kids mm-hmm. are at home to with their families. Everyone's kind of their nerve bandwidth is getting thin or minimal and people just get agitated and not all of us are necessarily equipped at, with the skill set that's typically required to problem solve some of those discords. Um, that's true. And it's quick to just yell or immediately react instead of respond. And so we're seeing a lot of that, you know, people losing their jobs and people are just getting more frustrated and it's escalating situations and spending time with them in places, uh, small places too, especially if it's just at home strictly. Um, but what we've also noticed too is COVID and this whole COVID pandemic, it, it's also being used as um, another tactic is medical abuse. It's being used in a way, um, sometimes perpetrators preventing um, the victim here from getting access to medical care or getting testing or really? using it from like you need to stay in your room for two weeks don't come near me or shaming individuals for maybe potentially having COVID or having been exposed to it uh, taking complete medical situation that's com- almost virtually out of our control you know we do have some control wearing masks or where we're going or not going but the reality is is we virtually kind of don't have any control if it's if we're going to come into contact we're going to get sick we're going to get sick um but people are using that. Perpetrators can use that and have used that against victims to continue to control them. And you're not going to find work or you do need to find work, but I'm not going to go to work. You know, perpetrator has done that too. Perpetrators have done that too, where they just stay at home and um, refuse to go work and feel that, you know, that other individual needs to go out and, and do that for the family. And figure out how to provide, right? Yeah. Now you said that, uh, now I'm asking about the mortality rate. You said that a lot of them will flee and will have a higher chance of mortality and they'll have a higher chance of dying. Is that right? Did I understand that right? Yes. How does yes. that work? I don't, I don't understand. Is it because they don't have anywhere to go? Um, no, it's not directly necessarily tied to lack of resource. Um, and, I'm, uh, and I meant to note earlier, so I'll note now that, you know, you have to keep in mind those that are going into emergency shelter setting, it's not necessarily preferable, right? And it, especially if you have children, it's not preferable. <laughs> I wouldn't imagine going into a shelter is preferable for anyone. I don't think so. Uh, you know, I've never met an individual that was just so gleefully glad to be there on accord of being in a shelter. Now I've met plenty of individuals that were glad to be there because they're safe or they don't have to worry about keeping a cord of all their time or their money is missing or, you know, or not saying the right thing and getting hit or those kinds of things. But, um, lost my train of thought. It's okay. We were talking about the mortality rate. Yeah. So leaving it just statistically leaving any, any victim that has been involved in a, um, intimate partner relationship that has escalated into, any type of um, abuse that we've mentioned, like physical, mental, emotional, right. financial, um, 
just like any situation has the potential to escalate and those that have gone I would say a lot of the times it's those that the victim has already been physically perpetrated on pretty extensively. They, they will stay with aggressor and usually there's some warning signs as the evolution of the relationship kind of continues to pan out that things are escalating. They're going to continue to escalate. Um, they just get worse and worse, right? Worse and worse and worse, meaning, you know, it starts with words. Then it starts with throwing things, intimidation, breaking your items, um, you know, who are you texting in the middle of the night? Let me know your phone code so I can take your phone whenever I want or in the shower. That's a great way to also install spyware on people's phones. Yeah. You, yeah, you mentioned you mentioned people getting monitored while they were trying to look this stuff up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's so many elements. Um, we could talk about red flags all day, too, that you could get enough of a situation and to tell that when things are escalating, um, those are sometimes can be indicative of future fatality sometimes, um, but not always. And then there's situations where I've never personally encountered someone where I've eventually, they've eventually um, passed away due to directly being involved in an intimate partner violence situation. That's but, good. you know, there's, there's the news articles that we hear about. We don't hear about how prevalent this is for the day-to-day household more than we do to hear the horror cases of, you know, guy shows up at work, stalked her for three days, followed her home, shot her, you know, like, right well, well, yeah, right those now. are the ones that people are going to click on or watch or whatever. Yeah. And not to minimize, um, any of that, the, the traumatic aspect of any of that, but then you, you know, every so often you have those stories that are making the news, obviously, or some of them, if you look more into the, very rarely will it be though, like, no warning signs. There's always going to be a warning sign somewhere in there, especially within length of the relationship too. So there's other elements to take into consideration, but other, other than that, I'm not saying every victim dies when they leave their perpetrator, certainly not. Um, but the risk for being re-perpetrated or potentially it escalating to cost you know, a victim's life, the reality of that is still there. And if you're seeking shelter service, it's obviously, like I said, not something that you're avidly wanting to do. It's because you literally don't have any other resource or because that perpetrator knows where you live, where your mother lives, where your cousin lives in like five states, knows everybody's address. You can't go anywhere. It's it's sharing the same banking account can tell where you're pulling out money, has installed fireware on your phone, like who's really put you in a corner and a lot of these times, these are situations that have escalated over time where the perpetrators put up series of things in place to deliberately trap someone. And when I say trap, I mean really just strip that individual of their autonomy and the right to choice and freedom. Um, it's a dominating uh, It's power and control. Yeah, yeah, power and control. Yeah, and the power and control will, I don't know... Um, in your research, if you came across that too, but that's something that's um, brought up a, quite a lot in domestic violence just because it's got so much research behind it. Um, it and does, it breaks yeah. down. That's what you the see in the films too. Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit of uh, education on domestic violence. Those, po- those power, uh, power wills kind of help break it down a little bit. And they give examples of, you know, 
what this looks like, X, Y, and Z financial abuse and how that would show itself in a day-to-day. And sometimes you read it and you were like, oh my gosh, some of these things apply to me, but (laughs) there's a level of being able to assess your own relationship and know where the boundaries are, you know, and we, you know, if you're having one-offs with your partner or ever so often, but what is the reality? Is this literally happening every day, every other day, every week? Is it when your perpetrator is drinking, using drugs, not slept, coming off of a work shift or like, you know, there's conditions that are going to escalate and, you know, our victims learn that and they learn how to work around the perpetrator too, because it's helped them survive. And so they, by the time they come into shelter service, you know, you don't have anywhere else to go. You don't, you've burnt out all your resources. You know, this is in obviously domestic violence shelters. They, the actual shelter component is not like the outreach in the sense that they're not ever going to be coupled at one same location they're always going to be separate because we cannot disclose the physical location of our shelter. That is only strictly for those coming into service um, to have access to that. And we don't even give the physical location to those individuals. We walk them step-by-step on how to get to our actual shelter site. Really? I found this, um, what was this? I think this was a few days ago when I was getting ready for this episode. I can't remember the article. I thought it was actually, I think I found it on the onion. Uh, But I, I've read a couple things, and I just thought that it was crazy that uh, a lot of domestic abuse shelters will send like cryptic messages, like "I need you to be here at this time. You're going to see this, and then when you see that, walk towards it, and you'll see a payphone. Pick up the payphone at this time, and when mm-hmm. you get the when you get on that payphone, we're going to give you an address. Then you need to go there. We'll pick you up, and we'll more or less blindfold you and take you where you're going. Which you know is. In my opinion, kind of scary too, especially I can't even imagine being in a situation like that as a victim. And, and also if you throw children into the mix and then leading blindly to a mysterious voice on the other end and then randomly get navigated here to here to here. And, and, you know, it's common in America to be like, well, yeah, that was a professional number and this is and this. But when you're in the field of trauma and working in direct service, like that is critical in understanding still victims are stripped of their autonomy in service almost just because there's limitations to what we can do and what we can provide. But also like, you know, I see it quite often too, where we're just, you know, expecting things of clients or speaking at them instead of with them and trauma informed work is working with the client, always giving options, no matter how unfavorable the outcomes are. And just going step by step to really trying to understand what that must feel like for someone to go and lead blindly. So I can't even imagine going into shelter service on top of leaving someone and the fear behind that with children and going to an unknown name and an unknown place, the unknown caller and going step by step and leading blindly. I think our victims are really brave all the time. And I have to remind them of that. And that's easy for me to come from that perspective because it was drilled into me, you know, like 10 plus years of social work. It's like that that's a notion that kind of just gets drilled into you over and over and over again. I can understand it. You know, and, and while I was reading these things about the things that the victims need to go through, I thought that, uh, you know, if I can find this on the internet, then I'm sure a victim can find that on the internet. And at that point, their trust levels are already so broken and they're already at the point where they don't feel like they have an escape. And so when they see all these hoops, I, I say hoops with quote, quote marks on my fingers, but 
when they see these hoops that they need to jump through. Um, how many of the people that you've talked to have said that it was traumatic to jump through those hoops and put themselves out there like that to trust a complete stranger to go to all these strange places. And then once they finally make it there, still feel like they haven't really gotten away. Like what, what, what has been your experience? Yeah, that's, I think you do speak truth to that. It's, um, it's disheartening because it feels like a constant beat down for victims to go through a series of all these things and preparing to leave. And some victims have been preparing to leave and tried a few times. Some, it just, maybe it was a first one-off situation. They're like, no way and get out of there or had previous experience. It was like, no way, get out of there. They're going to be a multitude of reasons, right. Or leading up to actually leaving. But um, we have to be diligent as frontline social service providers to not see a victim and be like, you know, I know it was so hard for you to get here, which would be validation. That's very critical in the first validation I read was so important for victims to hear too. It's the first thing that you should ever do is validate them. And the next thing that I commonly hear is, but you're safe, but you got here. Okay. But now you can sleep well tonight. And it's like, I know the urge for us to kind of, that's still a little bit of rescuing as a professional, you know, and minimizing, minimizing and assuming that it was hard for them. Mm-hmm. Um, some victims, it's not hard. Um, and that I've seen professionals get shocked in a different way. That's a whole different topic of conversation. Um, but validating clients and being like, it must have been very hard for you to consider leaving. You know, that's a really brave thing for you to do. And it seems that you've made a healthy de- decision, if you, especially if you feel like your safety is being compromised. And most importantly, your children. If children are in the mix. That's the first thing that I always address. Um, but being real, uh, and, you know, and not offering a new, and none of that statement that I just said, you know, did I rescue you or offer you false hope or I'm not, a, I didn't offer you a miracle or I'm not going to change anything. I'm not assuming, you know, I'm just starting conversation and just validating where they are and trying to get a little bit more information about where, where they are exactly too. Cause there's a trust factor in there. Yeah. Uh, but you know, this is such a, a big topic cause I always view domestic violence or intimate partner violence is kind of oppression inside of oppression. Um, Because in social work, you know, you have all these like genres of homelessness and aging population and disabilities and children with emotional behavioral needs or disabilities. There's mental health. Um, There's obviously domestic violence. There's all these like little subgenres of oppression. Um, LGBTQ issues, but then you see domestic violence and it, it, it links it all across the board. And so when I'm sitting with the victim that let's say she has no children, she's age 40, she has a physical disability. She's been married previously for 20 years. Um, current, let's say current partner. She's only been with for less than a year you know, going through these things and being like, have you ever had violence before? Have you ever gone through this before? I always ask that question. Or have mm-hmm. you been in shelters before? Because that's a great starting point, too, is like, you know, is this your first time to be in a place like this? 
Yeah. A lot of times victims are saying, no, so you've never been in a shelter? No. Okay, so that's going to be, yeah, expect to have an adjustment period. You know, for the next week, I want you to just get acclimated to the environment and, like, help them build a sense of mastery in their environment because that's restoring um, their autonomy and empowering them to go out and do for themselves because this is not a relationship where I'm going to rescue you and make miracles happen. This is a relationship that I work for you. I don't know the need unless you would express it. Um, how do I help you restore your family? How do I help you get to your next spot? And on that second token is like, I go through just that example of a, what a, an average client would be because just because of all what I just listed, those are other impressions that the client probably already had exposure to before ever being in this new relationship for the past year. Mm. Like, you know, having the disability being 40 and having a physical disability that's kind of young. So what happened? What did you do in your twenties and thirties? You said you were married 20 years. You must've been young when you got married. What was that like? That wasn't, that wasn't violence, you know, but this new relationship, it really escalated quick and three months in he just started throwing things one day and I could go on yada yada right but yeah. then you kind of learn as you build rapport and you're working a few weeks with someone you bring up the old relationship what happened to him oh so you ended up having a kid you did oh okay what happened to the kids so then there's shame because then you start to learn that maybe in the old relationship they did have kids but then that person got custody or they lost custody together as a couple and someone else got custody of the kid and then although the the victim could be disclosing to you that this previous marriage before it's something still worth noting or exploring in my professional opinion because what I've come to find out, not everybody has the same definition of abuse. Um, most of the time in our common American culture, we think abuse is very like all those news articles. Yeah, we think it's right. it's nothing but physical and a bunch of screaming and a right. big falling out. And that's that's the only the ones you hear about. And yeah, and all kinds of like really, you know intense opposite ends of, you know, just like, yeah, we didn't get along, but you know, and then as I learned these things and things will come up about previous relationships, not saying every victim goes through this, this is just an example of really peeling back layers of oppression when you're working with clients and not just seeing like, Oh, you're here today for this domestic violence reason. And then we're just going to do this domestic violence whole case thing with you over this one situation relationship. It's really unpacking and exploring what has been going on for your other parts of your life and how we lead up to this point. And usually eventually they'll start to disclose a little more about previous relationships about, um, and that's when you can kind of pick up if they've had violent previous relationships. Right. And I see that pretty common where you've either victim is either minimized or seen some red flags or maybe didn't understand a red flag and didn't think anything of it. A lot of times we try to be hopeful too, especially in a new relationship. We want to see the better half of someone. We want to look past those little off idiosyncrasies that are kind of like major spine tingle a little bit in a bad way, but you're like, no, what do I know? Right. And so we see, I see that a lot and those, those relationships will continue to, escalate for some victims they're just in a habit of picking a particular type of person and i don't say that to blame victims for their own abuse i say that so people understand that the first thing in in creating change for yourself is realizing what have i been doing on my own accord that has been warranting these results that seem to be repetitive 
because I'm the common denominator. And so if you ever get the privilege, or, sorry, I don't want to say you, but me, if I ever get the privilege of working with a victim long enough and to have that that type of therapeutic rapport with them and we're unpacking things, this is a critical component of part of the family violence and addressing it is really not looking at issues so to blame yourself or whatever, but really looking at the family dynamics and breaking the intergenerational cycle. And you can only do that with people that you have their consent to do that for because you have to see that there is an issue in order to work on it. Yeah. Right? And then yeah. You As a victim, <laughs> you've got to be willing to see that. Right. Right. And then on both of those things, you know, if you're talking to a social worker, which, you know, I love the profession. I'm in and out true and tried hard social worker, like personally, professionally, but when you're sitting there with someone that's like really hesitant to trust you too, like it's hard to get through to, okay, do you see like some of this is concerning? Are you ready to go to therapy? Are you ready to work on communication, at least with your kiddos, you know, trying to find something that they see also an issue for their family structure at that present time and also willing to um, unpack it is really a more appropriate word for it, unpack it and see patterns in their family just to help prevent it in the future. Just because statistically too, family violence is an intergenerational thing. That's another component. I see victims, you know, I was just sitting with the victim today and she was just, I had never, and I've been working with her for two and a half weeks. You know, she's got some medical um, delays that have impacted her ability to speak clearly. And so there's like a little communication barrier between me and her, but we seem to work it out um, so far for what's good on both of our court. And I feel we both feel really great about that. <laughs> and it's a, it just goes to show like you just never fully know anyone. Um, she just randomly started talking about her past and it came up that she was speaking on something with her own mother and her father. And I just called it out and was like, Oh, so you've had family violence exposure when you were a little girl, when you were a child, you know, and she just looks at me and a light bulb goes off. And it's like, it helps to call people out, not to call them out on their game. That's not what I'm doing here by no means. That's a different conversation, but to just pretty much state the facts back, what they're disclosing to you and helping connect the dots. But yeah, yeah no, it's a it's a completely it's a completely different situation when you hear someone say it to you. Yeah, and so just going back to the whole, um, I know I'm kind of rambling, but the oppression and oppression layers. It's just doing social work, especially in um, domestic violence, and having a trauma sensitive, trauma informed focus. Also taking into account, I'm starting where you're starting. Um, I'm listening to all your concerns as you express them, not as I'm interpreting. Or, or seeing them to be. Um, we all constantly make professional opinions about our clients that we're working with or make recommendations, but I'm always honoring what that individual wants. But it can be very difficult, difficult when you're going through this process with them because then you start to see those layers of oppression come out. Like I was saying, um, yeah. previous relationships growing up or intimate-wise. or Intergenerational. What What's your, yeah, what's income like been like for you and like opportunity, access to opportunity and resource is really a, a big portion of that. And not having either of those can start to layer on those oppressive factors. Um, 
but so it can be a lot in domestic violence. That's why it's not, it's not strictly domestic violence. It helps me to understand you as a whole person because that is social work. That's one of the biggest things that makes social work different from uh, psychology because, you know, a lot of social workers um, move on from like, I'm an LMSW, so I got my master's, I'm licensed in the state, but the next level for me would be to get a clinical license. And so that would be therapeutic and equatable to like a psychologist would probably do or someone that went into school and got a master's degree in psychology, then got their LPC, which is a licensed right. professional counselor. Yeah. Difference between those two is that while both could do an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker could do therapeutic work, just like an LPC, a licensed professional counselor, did I say that right? LCSW, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Excuse my acronyms. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, people can look it up if they really need to. <laughs> look it up. Look it up. <laughs> so the, but the but difference between a licensed social worker and a yeah, licensed the only counselor. That in the way that the two disciplines view the problem. So psychology, it's common that you study the brain a lot. You study the individual as the center point of focus for why um, whatever is going on inside their head or their perspective of the world is probably their relation to their problem. So whatever is going on inside of me is affecting the way I interact with my systems, yeah. the way I interact with people in my life. Um, whereas social work is quite the opposite. It views the person inside the system that they're operating and it looks like outside in. So it's looking at what are the systems, the politics, the institutions that are creating the conditions that I do exist in and how are they compounding my issues. And so social work tends to be more holistic. There are, there's tons of more progressive um, psychology and things these days. So I don't want to speak ill of that because uh, I love psychology, but it's just, a lot of the difference, though, is if you go for therapeutic reasons, you're looking at an LCSW. If you're looking at LPC, usually it's more well-rounded in a systems kind of perspective with social work. Right. It's more of a focused and closed-off environment, like you're a practicing doctor rather than a social worker who's learning about the person and trying to reveal things, more or less, to that person to help them understand and empower them with info. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully put. Yeah. You yeah. set that up great. So there was one thing that you said um, you, you wanted to help them become masters of their environment. And whenever they're in the shelter, obviously they're going to be, do they interact with other victims too? Yeah. They do? Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I can't imagine that that's too easy. Like what, what is that like? That is, can be a very beautiful therapeutic thing um, because it's, we're social creatures. And so we need to, interact and identify and associate with others that are similar to us, especially, um, and it can be really healthy and conducive in in an environment like this, you would kind of assume or think, but not always. Um, It's because you just have so many different types of individuals coming in. Um, And I know I have not specified much on gender. I primarily work with just females and children. do you but know they're the, interacting in the environment. I mean, yeah. Do do you, uh, I can't imagine that it's exclusive to just men having power and control and dominance over women. I, I can, I, I, I've heard of situations. I'll, I'll talk from my own experience. My mother was uh, was ill. She had she had a lot of mental issues, and I lived with her for three years exclusively, and. 
what she did was I thought it was strange at the time, but you know, I was a kid. I didn't know any difference. I, I, I think I turned 11 when I left, but she, uh, in her illness and not knowing better and not knowing what to do, she moved a small trailer into the backyard of our, uh, of our little plot of land in Oregon. And she moved in there. And the only time I would see her is when she would drop off groceries every now and then she'd cook for me, but I pretty much had to feed myself, clothe myself. Um, How old were you? Eight, eight, nine, oh, 10, wow. something like that. Yeah. Uh, I left when I was 11. And so it was just over three years that I laid, that I lived with her. And, um, you know, it, it had an impact on me and I treated women differently from that point on, but I can see the relationships from women to men and men being victims. And I can't imagine that they, you see that often, but can you speak to that? Like how, how many men come through your, your service? Not maybe not just for you personally, because I imagine men speak with men and women speak with women. Is that more or less how right, it works? Right, right. It's separated by gender. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't want to give too many other details away about our, um, that would directly link me to where I work specifically. Uh, it's all I'm good. Those are things that I would that. assume is how but it would work. But I'm happy that you speak on that because that is a very hardcore reality. Um, and it's probably happening way more prevalent than even in our awareness, researchers' awareness, because um, it's just so predominantly, has historically been a predominant gender-based perpetration. Um, but yeah, men are totally victimized in a lot of different ways, and it looks different than how female are typically perpetrated on. Yeah, I can imagine that there's a lot more manipulation because women realize they can't overpower a man, so they very mentally and emotionally abuse. Right, and it, that's a subtle communication style that women typically do too. It's like um, just a subtle, indirect... Passive aggressive? Really, yeah, it's not really explicit or forward or direct. Yeah, and so it could be easily seen, for sure, manipulation and some of those uh, words, but... Um, there's a hotline, national hotline. That's what the national hotline, domestic violence hotline is for. That's um, what we referenced earlier too. So men are more than willing to contact that hotline. I think that the stigma is stronger in our culture in America though, about men needing help and, and requesting help or making cries for help. You don't see men as often call the police because I know in Texas too, they, they passed a law where if there's a domestic violence dispute and an officer goes out and they cannot determine who the perpetrator is then both need to be arrested. Yeah. That literally like very rarely do I actually see that happen. Um, I've seen a lot of instances where maybe some of the victims I've been working with that are female have retaliated in self-defense, which comes with its own legal setbacks. I mean, I yeah, wouldn't I can imagine. advocate, I would advocate that only to a certain degree, but you know, I've had victims show up and have a scratch and they were arrested in the last incident of abuse, they were the ones that ended up being arrested, even though he physically assaulted first cops come out, can't determine, but she doesn't have any physical bru visible bruises yet. Um, or just not necessarily, we all bruise different, right? Or any other injuries that an officer can barely see, but they see a scratch on him. And then that would be grounds to arrest her. 
And then the, the very well, that would just be now a situation where they're both perpetrating on each other. Right. right? Even though it's um, self-defense. Right. You're still inflicting violence on somebody else, another person. Um, people, you know, people in our culture have a hard time with that self-defense notion too. Like, oh, you threw the first strike, I'm going to hit you back. That's not necessarily legally true. Um, please get out of there as with all, at all costs that you can because you do not want to catch a case. So <laughs> don't no, that's the true. person back. That's true. Um, I don't, I don't, there's witnesses. <laughs> yeah, there are, you're right, there are witnesses. Uh, you were talking about how, though, even if it's just a scratch, someone has to go to jail. And I, I found that in Dallas County, I think uh, for some time now, it's law that when there's a family violence call, and even if it's like a courtesy check of sorts, if it's a family violence call, the police are required to take someone in, even if it, even if they're the victim in the case. Like they have to pick someone up, put them in handcuffs, put them in the back of the car, and take them somewhere. Do you? I don't how, necessarily do you guys, know. Go ahead. I don't necessarily know if that's happening. I yeah, so it's not foolproof, it right? No, it, it's, it's not, not foolproof. There was a case where this happened and the police came and they couldn't find any reason to take anybody in. And somebody died the next day uh, because it was actually happening, but they couldn't find any proof. So if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to look it up. But uh, if I'm not, I remember reading that it's a law in Dallas County specifically that if it's a family violence or domestic violence, as people know it by call, then someone needs to go to jail. Yeah, someone needs to go, or if they can't make, like I said, if they can't make the determination, then they're supposed to arrest both parties. Um, but that just, that it just, the legal process is not, it can be very black and white. It's not very kind to those that have been harmed. And that's a whole other discussion is navigating our legal process and what is the formality that law enforcement is supposed to take or those at the hospital or even, you know, by the time that I even, do receive a victim and they have children and usually instead of we're, you're supposed to find out if CPS is involved because we're mandated reporters. So right. Right. if you disclose that you're being hurt or you intend to hurt someone, we have to man, we're mandated to report that. Um, and so usually instead of saying like, do you have CPS? Did you call CPS or has CPS been called? Cause that's threatening. It's immediate and everything. Um, so usually and I have to know that in like the first interaction typically, um, you know, that validating going through the story and then asking, you know, were the police called? No, they weren't. But did you go to the, I saw you went to the hospital. Yes, you did go to the hospital. Did anyone come talk to you? Were the kids with you? You know, usually by that point, um, being seen at the hospital and coming into service, usually it's been a 24 hour lapse or something. And then they usually will know by then that if CPS has been contacted or not. Um, because I'm a mandated reporter, and but obviously, being reporting someone is going—it's not the funnest thing, and the family obviously will be upset. And and having, you know, we don't necessarily have to disclose that, but it's—it can be therapeutic to disclose that, especially if you can get the victim to make the report themselves to advocate for their family. Um, if they've disclosed that aggressor had done anything to the children, but in the in in the state of Texas. If children are present in the home, even in the next room, and they just hear it, they don't even have to hear it. You can assume that they never heard it. They had headphones in. They were in the next room. The door was closed. They never saw anything. Completely oblivious. Completely oblivious. But if police show up and their children in the home, they have to, they're mandated to report it. I can also say that that doesn't happen either. I've had plenty of victims that have come into police contact and or hospital contact. By the time they've made it to me, there was not a report made. Um, Wait. Yeah. 
Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. I'm sorry. Wait. <laughs> so I, I was Googling some stuff. So you may have said it earlier, but I just caught you say that uh, sometimes these things aren't reported by the man, by the people who are supposed to report it. Right. By the mandated reporters. Good God. Do you see that in social work only or, is, or, or rather in police officers only? Or do you see it with social workers who are called to the premises too? Um, very rarely will a social worker be called out to the crime scene um, because if, if, there are, if there is one, she came, he or she came with the law enforcement team to intervene because they do have emergency social workers that can go and yeah. aid the officers with these things. Right. Um, social workers tend to be more resourceful with that stuff, like on the spot. Or um, the only other reason why a victim would have access to a social worker like that is at the hospital. Besides, if that, if not a police officer. Now I know in Dallas the training has picked up, and I've actually come across quite a few officers that really knew their stuff in and out and were very delicate and very sensitive to getting the victim from point A to point B, anything that they, you know, this is what you do. This is how you do it. And like being resourceful and knowledgeable is really what's going to help you. We don't need people to like us. We don't need, you know, favorability or anything like that. We just need resources, right. And connecting with the victims and getting them to where they need to go to. But, um, so, but police police are sometimes not reporting this though. Right. And they're not social workers. And so not always does a social worker, really a social worker doesn't show up 90% of the time with an officer unless there was children involved. And so that was my second notion. If you didn't come into contact with a social worker at the hospital, then either CPS was contacted. Also, very rarely do they actually make it in time to come out with an officer that's actually, because, you know, phone calls to the police are immediate and emergent. Yeah, it's you know, it's quick, like yeah. a heads up or something. Um and so CPS will usually respond within 24 to 48 hours of the original report made. Um, so not always do you get the social worker out on the scene, on the spot, addressing what's going on there. So our officers, we kind of lean on them to be resourceful and some of our medical personnel to also do that. Um, but yeah, by the, so sometimes I get victims and I end up having to make the CPS report just because there were children in the home um, or because mom has disclosed her child made an outcry about some type of abuse towards the children directly. And that only prolongs the process, too, of keeping these people safe, doesn't it? Yeah, and it can be pretty traumatizing to have CPS involved. I don't want to put a negative spin on that by no means. Um because really every parent has the right to legally govern their child and the state respects and honors that with limitations. And if you violate those limitations, then the state has the obligation to get step in and restrict those parental rights until you can prove to the state that it's safe for your children to remain with you without state involvement. And so that's the perspective that I have to educate parents on, too, because it's just so traumatizing to go through the CPS process. It's it's a service beatdown for some families and some families need those interventions. But um, in theory, it works. Right. But in reality, it's a different it's a different story. Yeah, I can could, I could see on your face that it's like it, it's not only traumatic, but it awful. has to be the kind of experience that would discourage anybody from really going through it right like it's a bunch of bureaucracy i I can imagine that the bureaucracy of cps specifically and again we're not we're not disparaging it because sometimes it's incredibly necessary right uh and there's a lot of checks and balances involved too so that obviously slows the process but it can be grueling for a parent 
Um, I know a story of uh, a friend of mine that was at the Dallas 24 hour club was trying to get her kids back, for example. And she was the victim of domestic abuse, uh, family violence here in Dallas County. And she was arrested because they found drugs on her person. So, you know, they took her to jail and she served, I think a handful of months, but in that time, her abuser ended up filing for custody and winning because she couldn't show up because she was in jail. Right. And so this, um, and her partner was also female, you know, and they adopted these kids. So it was just, it was a whole mess. And I, I watched her, uh, in later to 2015 for a couple months, I watched her go through that whole process and it was just so big. I think she finally got her kids back. Uh, like two years later, but it took two years and it took a lot of burden of proof that, um, her partner was, was, was aggressive. It does take a tremendous amount of burden of proof in two years to get your children back. Seems pretty, pretty accurate for the average. Um, that's what I, yeah. So getting them involved can just be a whole nother grueling process, but you know, a lot of those times, what I've noticed, too, is once they see that family has come into, once initial reports made, be it our agency, a police officer, or hospital, someone, CPS gets in contact, they want to come and they want to see the family and that they're actually where they say that they are and that the children are really safe. And so I always educate, use that as a turning point to educate them, too, because some people get defensive, like, why? Why are you CPS? I was like, no, it's just to give you a heads up, this is the process that if a report was made, you know, they're going to have to come out and see you and they're going to want to see the kids and do a visual check. And most of the time, if you know, that's okay. And everything's clear because you're enrolled in service. And then they will ask me what service you're enrolled in. And I say that I respect your privacy which is your ability to choose not to tell me certain things. And I respect your confidentiality, meaning what you do tell me, I'm not going to go tell everyone. Yeah. Those are two two different things. And so while I don't require your privacy, you don't have to share that with me. I can give you confidentiality. Mm -hmm. And however, if a CPS investigator asked me, um, something I have to tell them honestly. So I'm legally obliged to tell the truth and I will tell them the truth, but I'm only looking to answer what I'm being asked because I also understand the traumatization that can happen through this formal process or semi-formal process, um, depending on your caseworker. Right. Of course. So of course. That, that's a big element too for people. Um, do a lot of do a lot of people expect it to be something like privilege like in the in the in a court of law do they expect the things that they say to be privileged and information that doesn't need to be uh disclosed like what the client is disclosing to child protective services or to you like do they do they disclose things to you like say abuse to a child um or suspected abuse to a child they're not sure but they're saying i he might i don't know and is there an expectation that that is also confidential? Kind of like similar to talking to a lawyer. So are you talking more in terms of me and the Child Protective Service investigator? Yes. You. So like me, CPS me. comes and says, we heard that there could be possibly abuse in this house. Are you're required uh-huh. to say something like, yes, there is suspected abuse. 
instead of saying that's privileged? Well, I mean, I've never been asked directly by like, usually CPS wants to meet directly with the family and I encourage that. Oh, that's I, do not, I don't need to be meeting with CPS. There's no reason why I need to meet CPS. Okay. Even if I made, even if, if I made the report, even if, and if I did make the report, they call me, typically they will call me either right before they show up, like 30 minutes or like something very last minute, or, um, if they can't get to me in a more timely manner before then, I think maybe it's happened one time I could speak to them. They usually just ask for an accord of like what you witnessed or what you heard. I strictly give what was the, the report was made about. Um, and then once they go through our security clearance and all these other things, just I can disclose the address to them and then they'll come. Um, they just strictly meet with the client still. Um, but most of the time it's very last minute accord. If, if I made the report that they'll contact me, um, a lot of the times it's after they've already came and then they've left. They just strictly want to know what services is this family going to be receiving at the agency. Okay. Because it could be, um, you know, my agency is a nonprofit, so it's not a, tied to a government entity like Child Protective service, Services are, but you could do a cross layer of service there. Like I can probably help mom get connected to counseling for herself if the kiddos of their age appropriate. Uh, mom, and we these- have parenting classes to offer if she needs to get into any type of substance abuse treatment enrollments, like Mm. let's look at that. Like those are typical things that the um, family court of law are going to want to see or being done in the family as part of the service delivery for child protective services anyway. So that's a lot of the times when CPS comes and they see that family's there and they're safe. And if there were no other additional outcries made or information was kind of disclosed or things popped up in the investigation, yeah. CPS typically they're like, after they come to see family and shelter, they don't really mess with anybody after that. They'll do their, um, do their thing. Follow-ups. Yeah. Um, now going back to, the client privilege. Um, it's definitely not like client attorney privilege. It could be similar in the sense that I will never talk to a CPS worker behind my client's back okay. out of just respect for them. Um, I will tell my C- I will tell my client that I talked to so-and-so at CPS. They asked me X, Y, and Z and I had to tell them A, B, and C. Right. Cause I can't lie. But I really have never been put, knock on wood, in a compromising situation where it's ruined my therapeutic relationship. I try to set up the conditions where they still have full empowerment. They're navigating this process with the state. I'm not there to hide or lie or cover up or yeah. sabotage or, you know, drag them through the mud. Um, and that's the same, too. You know, we have to coordinate service a lot outside of our agency. And so we get clients written consent to do all those things. And I strictly will say... This is the name of the person. This is the name of the agency. This is the phone number and the email. This is the reason one, two, three, ABC, why you want me to talk to them. Cause that builds up that trust with the clients that I'm not speaking on things that are not even related to what the purpose of this service coordination is. Wow. Um, and that just helps the relationship that helps the therapeutic relationship together. And it just all goes back to the, it's my style too, how I am with, with clients and just being like, you have the right to privacy. Uh, you don't have to share all those things to me, only the relevant things, and we'll go from there. So I that's very much true with CPS. Like now if CPS if CPS is saying, Hey, what services is this family enrolled in? Um, you know, and I tell them everything and I kinda know that last night I saw mom 
swat at her kid, right, with her hand, swatting meaning hitting, you know, just slapping the hand or slapping the face, not to minimize that, um, because I do see that kind of stuff. Then I have to tell, you know, and the next day, CPS caseworkers like, hey, anything else that I should know outside of service delivery? Mama seems to be struggling with physical punishment. How often do you see that? And I haven't, I I see that a lot, but not to the example that I'm speaking on where I have to immediately dispose that to CPS. Um, I'm speaking on, usually there's some time that's lapsed between either me discovering that mom is physically punishing child or I witnessed it or something. I like to intervene and try to address that and give first, if especially with something just like swatting, like we get frustrated. That's a reaction. That's not a response. A response would be thoughtful and deliberate and planned and appropriate consequence. Um, But asking for a snack and you're, you're slapping your kid for that. Either it's swatting on the hand or like I said, swatting at the face, slapping at the face. Those are, I tend to see that a lot. That's just very reaction. It's quick. It gets the kid to stop, uh, especially if mom is scared or frustrated. Um, but I like to use that as a turning point to be like, you know, I saw the other day, you seemed pretty frustrated. What was going on that day? Yeah. I'm concerned about you and let them tell me what's going on in their lives and, and explain. So I understand, you know, kind of some means to the thought process. And, that, and also knowing that, you know, family violence situations, we do see it a lot because it's intergenerational. So then you learn, like, she was spanked as a kid. So she spanked. And that, and that parents use that a lot as a defense. Well, my mom did that. And so I'm going to do this. And, I turned out okay. And I turned out okay. And I'm like, well, did you know that 98% of people, you know, incarcerated right now were also spanked as children? So let, we, can, we can go down that topic if you want. But, like, but usually, you know, trying to get families and ally with them, it's, it's not one conversation. It's multiple conversations. And it's following up and being like, well, can you take me to your room and show me what they were doing and what was concerning? Well, they were grabbing for a snack in this drawer. Da, 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 da. I was like, yeah, it is kind of low. And they can they tend to get into it three times a week. He said that's kind of a lot. And that must create a lot of issues between the two. You must be arguing with them a lot. And they're like, yeah, I am. I'm just so frustrated. So I, if I can get mom to feel validated, that gives me buy-in to then get mom to feel empathy for the kiddo. And so sometimes our parents don't really feel self-compassion first for themselves or oh, self-worth. Yeah. Yeah. And that prohibits your ability. Doesn't It doesn't immediately, you know, say that you can't empathize with others, but it does minimize your ability to empathize with your own children. You have mm-hmm. low self-worth or self-compassion, your ability to feel that sadness or empathy for a child that is reaching for a snack in a drawer that you could easily move the snacks instead of saying that I'm keeping there, but he doesn't want to listen. So he's power struggling me. So I do, I swat him because he gets into them three times a week and it's annoying. It's like, well, okay, he's 10. So he's trying to, you know, build a sense of mastery of his environment and that, you know, he should be testing you. That's healthy. That's boundaries. And like looking at age appropriate development too for the kiddo, getting mom to understand that like some of these things are healthy and like, but it's creating a discord between you two as a family and communicating. How do we minimize that and like get you two to like open up and not use physical aggression as a means to resolve conflict? Because you told me when you were a little girl that like all these awful things, you know, ABCD, whatever the stories are, and just tie it back into their present day reality and let that have weight for them to build some of that empathy and starting there, like these conversations are not one off, you know, and then you, you feel like you make progress or in one element, the next day you come back and mom did it again. You know, yeah. I have some mom go brave and do it on camera. And I'm like, really? I said right there, like, 
Okay, we've already talked about it once. I have it documented that we tried to address this. You know, I really hate to tell you that if it happens again, and I try not to use CBS as a threat. I'm like, if it happens again, I have concerns for that in our living areas because you're doing it on camera. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing Someone it on else camera, is going to get involved. Somebody else is going to report you. I said, you do realize we're all mandated reporters here. Um, and so I'm not encouraging you to do it behind doors. But if you're doing it on camera, that means you're automatically doing it behind doors, in my yeah. opinion. And moms never have, like, denied that part. But – and I've only had a few that have done it on camera. But usually it's someone overhearing a child crying or spanking from a room, and then they'll cue a staff member in. Right. And then whoever's been working with that family will kind of, like, go in and intervene and unpack that. Um but they're very difficult conversations. Like I understand I would, if I was a parent and I was living in a situation like that, like I would not want some complete stranger coming and telling me how to discipline my children. No. Yeah. I can understand that for sure. Yeah. But that goes back to the intergenerational aspect of family yeah. violence. It's just handed, it's just handed down from, you know, and not understanding. And yeah. And not understanding, like I turned out fine. I don't know why this is such a big deal. I said, yeah, legally you can spank them on the bottom with an open hand with their clothes on, no objects. In the state of Texas, yes, it says that. I do not see you doing that. Yeah, I see you going for the face. I see you going for extremities. Right, and like if you must bank, let's let's talk about like that legal option, but that's not my first preference because it builds your, it runs your, not builds, it runs your own therapeutic rapport with your child and your ability to connect with them in the middle of their own trauma. And so stress responses in children look way different than they do in adults. Well, it's a lot and, more, it's a lot more internal, isn't it? For children that they very yeah, and, quickly refer, refer to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and kids are, you know, naturally self-centered and they're building mm-hmm. their own layers out to the world and being exposed to that. Yeah, that's um, all they know. Yeah. And so you see some children regress. So right. like I would see for the like 10 and under kiddos, they tend to regress a little bit more. And mom gets real frustrated. My kids are being super needy since we've been here. And it's like, you know, barely two weeks in, you know, you just finished your first week. And well, what do you mean by needy? Well, they're not, they used to brush their teeth at the house. And this every morning since we've been there, I have to remind them exactly when they brush their teeth. I have to help them lay their clothes out. And I have to help them do this. And it's frustrating because as parents, you have expectations of your children, especially on a court of what they've already been doing. Right. And then, you know, so like without realizing that it's a complete uproot of what they're used to. So they're just they are regressing because they're in a completely new environment and trying to figure that out, too. Right. And building that education piece to just to be like, you know, well, that's pretty common. And so that's why I usually when I have the first week of working with a victim there and being on campus, I'm not necessarily going to be over involved. So I'm not seeing you every day, every hour or two times a day. Go do your thing. Get some space. Like learn the campus, you know, build up your autonomy again. And then really, I say, be patient as you acclimate. Sleeping is going to be difficult. Your body's going to give you a lot of feedback. Our, your nervous system is on overdrive right now. Yeah. And so is your children's. And so we all have different stress responses. It's the fight, flight, freeze, or appease. And those look different in children than they would in adults. And so bringing that that patience, that validation, this is kind of what to expect next. Um, that one is really important, I've noticed, with 
with resident with clients because they they come back usually week two week three and say like oh my god you know when you were saying this and my sleeping and the nightmares and all that they kind of just stopped going away and like I didn't realize it until coming in here and meeting with you and I was like well that's great that tells me that your body is talking to you and your stress has come down a little bit and we need that to happen so you can access the outer layers of thinking mm. of your brain and so stress is, lives in the amygdala the str- that uh, stress response that I just mentioned um, it's in the amygdala and the primal part of your brain the center of your brain the part that's formed in utero and so that's like programmed how do you deprogram a response like that and so yeah, something that's can't. so ingrained that it was way before you were even a twinkle in mama's eye right and, and yeah. if you want to change it you have to be aware that it's worth changing and you see the point to change it and so we're not there yet day one you know yeah so that's it's hard to it's hard to retrain that part of the brain can you, yeah. can you repeat those stress those stress responses? I've heard of fight or flight, but I didn't hear the other ones. Yeah, so it's fight, flight, obviously like fleeing, yeah. um, freezing. Is that a complete shutdown? Yeah, okay. Or dissociating. Dissociating is very synonymous with freezing. Oh, disassociating um, and- is something special. If you, I would, I'm going to post a, a link to dis- disassociation because I'm very familiar with it. So, yeah. Yes, anyway, keep going. Yes. I am too. And, and, you know, to, to some extent, it's a survival thing too. We all do it. Yes, it is. Um, um, and then research is showing that there's a fourth one now, a piece. Um, yeah, someone referenced something different to me in a term I've never heard before a while back, but my mind has evaded me. My memories evaded me at the second. So, but a piece is what it would be. Um, those people pleasing types, mm. um, those I've really learned to placate and not fight back or, or, you know, like, yes, I'll do this or do this and do this just to kind of avoid conflict and to get out of that. Really those individuals got really good at manipulating mm. to get what they want. And we all have a level of manipulation because it's, motivational for survival so we all have to have manipulation to get what we want but then there's an extent where it's being like overused or underused too but dissociating yeah that one those those that are freezers have higher perpetration rates usually for the kiddos because those kiddos that are, yeah that are especially being sexually abused um especially if the perpetrator is threatening them um not saying anything, not fighting back, not running away, just letting them do it. You know, a lot of those kiddos will continue to take the gifts and the bait just because they're so fearful and shut down. Yeah. And, the, and then, you know, obviously in the, in the middle of a sexual assault, you know, a lot of victims that are tend to be freezers will also just dissociate. It's a survival mechanism. Your brain Gosh. has to shave off the most harmful parts. Yeah. That's uh Disassociation is something that is, uh, I used to study sociology in, in college and disassociation came up in one of the mental health classes that I was taking. And, uh, it really, it's so interesting to read about how people train themselves consciously to an extent that they can be, um, like I read about a CIA agent who, um, would disassociate if he was ever caught and he was caught and tortured for three weeks and says he doesn't remember it a bit of it because he disassociated so well that he trained himself to just disappear and go so far inside of himself that he didn't feel any of that until he was two weeks after he was rescued he had to reprocess himself back into the real world so disassociation is wonderful yeah Yeah. that's a really great example of that to being used in a survival a specific 
survival me- as a specific survival mechanism. What was that? I, I can imagine that uh, freezing was what happened to that young boy the, with the Netflix special. Do you, you know the one I'm talking about? Uh, Gabriel Hernandez? Oh, my goodness. I think I saw like part of an episode midway through the series and it was, it was emotional for me just being in the line of work that I drew the boundary there for myself emotionally and just didn't finish. Oh really? You haven't seen it all? No, but I know who you're, I know who you're referencing. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really famous case in California. Um, yeah. And gosh, Tabitha, this is, this is awesome. I'm sure that you could probably go on forever, huh? Oh my God. Yes. I really can. Cause <laughs> well, I love talking about this stuff. This stuff means so much to me, just social work in general and, you know, really making this a human issue and not a, a, a victim versus professionals kind of concern because it can happen to any of us. It has happened to professionals and, you know, I always say we're all one paycheck away from being homeless or in a crisis too. So really making it more of my goal today in the very least is I hope that it just shifted the perspective on how we see our fellow neighbors and how we see each other and going through hardships and really just being patient with one another. Um, Especially if you are involved with someone, a friend or a family member that you know is trying to leave an abusive relationship, just have patience with them and understand that it doesn't happen on your accord. And that's very frustrating when you're scared for them, but but threatening them about ending your own relationship with them where I can't talk to you or you can't talk to me about this anymore. I understand that those are boundaries that we try to create for our loved ones. But when it's someone that's dealing with any kind of um, intimate partner violence or interpersonal violence, those are kind of the same messages that their aggressors are sending them. And we're sending them subliminally. Like you are only worth helping if you're ready to leave. And, that's the bottom line for me today is just understanding that once you release um, your attachment to the outcome, it's much easier to accept and just stand by someone and stand with someone and just wait and be patient for that person to leave. Um, Especially if you just love them so dearly and you're just so concerned for that. Yeah. It's again, not about you. It's about them. And, And like I said, a lot of the times the, it's just so dangerous to leave in general. And a lot of victims that do end up on those news cases or on movie scripts or things like that are those that have already left. And so remember that when you're asking someone to leave, you're asking for a lot of that person when you're supposed to just be present and be there and support them and love them and really help them feel that from you um, as an, as an alternative to some of the hardships that they're also going through with their spouse, partner, roommate, friend. And it can also be dangerous for the witness of these things when they suggest something like that, because the aggressor could also turn their anger out on them too, right? To the witnesses. Yeah. I would recommend not personally involving yourself into um, other people's interpersonal relationships, um, just out of respect in general. I know that's hard for some families to do because some families tend to be a little bit more enmeshed than others. Yeah. Um, but, and I know that there's, there's people that are like, I don't care. It was my kid or it's my, it's my daughter. And I, no one's ever going to treat her that way. And I'm going to go get, well, you can, you can really be escalating a situation too. You can and exacerbate it. Right. 
exacerbate. And I think the key here is to have real conversations about, you know, I'm sad to hear that you are not ready to leave. Or maybe the person is saying that they want to leave. You're like, okay, it sounds like you're getting close to actually really planning to leave and wanting to leave. What would that look like for you? Where would you go? What do you think you should take? Um, as part of safety planning, you need to be safety planning for physical reasons and you need to safety plan for emotional reasons. Yeah. Um, emotional because you're still living in that environment and you need to talk to someone who's willing to have a hard, real conversation that's uncomfortable about listening to how maybe Joe Bob talks to Sally and having Sally listen to, you know, tell you all these things. And if you feel that you, it's too upsetting and you can't hear that, that's your job to set the boundary and be like, I'm really concerned and I want you, I'll help you find a mental health professional, an advocate, a victim advocate, someone to talk to that's more appropriate to service you long term. Right. But in the meantime, I can help you do those those little things that will lead to your success. Or maybe, you know, Sally saying, I'm not, I don't want to leave, Bob. I want to stay. Okay, what does staying look like for you? And, you know, is Bob open to getting help? Does Bob even think he has a problem? Because, you know, there's batter intervention programs, batter intervention prevention programs too that will address the anger piece and in these whole situations on the offender perpetrator side yeah. too. So there's, there's multiple ways to do this and you don't necessarily have to have a professional or be super professional to do these things and force someone to leave. Um, like I said, you need to create at least to be supportive and the way to be supportive directly to a victim is to have a safety plan with them, both physical and emotional. And so that that's great if, you know, sometimes victims are near their phone and can't necessarily call 911 or don't want to. Well, if you can text me mustard, I know to call 911 for you. And so then they show up and there's a more higher risk or higher risk, but higher chance or higher probability that perpetrator will be arrested this time on site. Or maybe I say mustard, I wouldn't advocate that a supporting person go directly into the violent home or into that situation themselves. Yeah, please I protect would, yourself. Please protect yourself and call 911 and render aid. Um, do not be a hero. Please do not take personal weapons and try to intervene in the situation and handle it at all. Usually safety planning for physical reasons and me texting or Sally texting me mustard means that you know, she's my aunt and I'm going to call 911 because this is what we've talked about. And when she says mustard, mustard means I call 911 to her address, her physical address. If she would have said mustard at Kroger, I know that there's a Kroger in her neighborhood and I can call 911 there. But if she's at Kroger, that's another thing people would think that bystanders would call 911 too. And that's not they true. There's a bystander effect. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, the bystander effect is just really, really. Um, Bizarre. That's a whole other social psychology thing. But with those ladies, safety planning for if you're at the grocery store, yell fire. Do not yell 911. Yell fire because for whatever reason, people hear fire and they don't see it, but they're like, so someone's car could be on fire smoking and they're going to call 911. I don't know. Someone's screaming fire. Come out here. So that's a good way to get law enforcement involved immediately too. I would never advocate though to go directly into trying to rescue someone, you know, you can, or going to pick them up. If that's too much of a risk, if you know that Bob has guns, I probably wouldn't go pick Sally up at directly at her house. If she can walk a few blocks, if she had the means to do that, maybe that would be an alternative, especially if she doesn't want to call the police, but you can always pay to put her in an Uber or a Lyft. Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, there's other ways to um, help that person leave an immediate situation or even continue to plan, especially while perpetrators at work. Um, 
And emotional safety planning is more about like, how do you know the situation's escalating? What are the trigger words? Does your body start to feel a certain way Mm. in these situations? Are are you getting trigger indications physically or because you notice that perpetrator is the one getting triggered based on these other conditions or situations? And how do we emotional safety plan so it doesn't escalate? Could you leave the home? Do you always move to a different room? Do you always stay near the front door if you can? Stay out of the kitchen. Don't stay near the knives or large appliances. Um, don't go to the back of the house and corner yourself. Stay near the front door or back door always in a room if you can or somewhere where you know that you've left the, the window unlocked on purpose. So you can just pop it open and leave. And these are these are kind of more on the extreme end, but this is the reality for some of our folks out there. And, and like I said, I'm strictly speaking to those that are in our community and we have loved ones that are going through this, whether we know it or not, um, or neighbors that are going through it, whether we know it or not, um, realistic ways to help them and support them to, to aid when they request it and when they're ready, not when you, you were requesting those things for someone because it could cost them their life. Yeah, that that's true. I I read a lot about that when I was looking things up too, is that a lot of uh, neighbors feel so compelled to help. And to the point where, like, they couldn't forgive themselves if they didn't do something, and it ended up leading to the uh, to the victim becoming a fatal victim, the victim of murder. Yeah. And um, you know, even those kinds of cases you don't really hear about in the news either, at least not on right. front page. But that's, are, and that, that's a prevalent. It's going back to just how prevalent it is. It's like sixty percent of it may be higher now that COVID has hit and everything. But these were the statistics towards the end of twenty nineteen was. So over 60% of the police calls made in Dallas alone are family violence related. It went up uh, 12.5% since COVID started, since the shelter and in place. And then it increased 12.5%. But I'm talking, if you think, 60% of any phone call in Dallas County made to 911. Over half of the phone calls are requesting aid due to someone inflicting some kind of harm. It's crazy. So, it's very astronomical. And then we're servicing probably like 2% of the population to like one, 2%. <laughs> very yeah, small. That actually get help. That actually get the immediate emergency assistance part. But then you have a big portion of our clientele that goes through outreach and that are remaining in the community that are setting up all these conditions to either remain safely with their perpetrated or to eventually get out of it and leave. Yeah. Well, We've gone for about an hour and 20 minutes. Um, awesome. I, I want to, Tabitha, I'd, I'd really like uh, to end with two different points. And one point is, what would you say to somebody specifically that knows someone's being abused? Uh, what kind of resources would you point them to so that they know how to respond and respond and not react and uh, how they can help the victim when they come crying? I love that you're asking me that. And I also love that and appreciate that you did say respond and not react because it's very hard to do. Um, It's a really trained thing to do over time to get yourself to learn how to keep your own central nervous system in in full control and your amygdala and all those components. Um, So I would say to tie that in directly to what you're asking is, the more self-control that you can maintain over your own body and your mental well-being and your own physical space, 
the more control that you have over that, the more grounded, the more present, the more calm your blood pressure is and your heart rate, the more access to the outer layer of thinking you're going to have, the more likely you're going to respond in a rational, reasonable sense than you are an emotional, like convincing sense to have the person you're concerned about actually leave or flee at that moment. Um, because they'll meet you emotionally as well, right? They'll they'll start to calm down if they see how calm you are. It's right. So there's two flips to that. So responding in a supportive way that you are available and it's not about you, and so you're there for them. And then the and then the second part of what you just said, yeah, yeah. staying calm and letting them see that, and then you know it's okay to express yourself. They are going to be expressing themselves and especially be very emotional, particularly after an incident too. Um, so those are reasons I would say more professionally that comes in your benefit. If you can remain in control at all times, um, of your physical body too, so you can continue to respond instead of react. Right. But if you feel that you are concerned for someone that is in a violent interpersonal or intimate partner relationship. Um, if you don't feel it's appropriate for your own mental well-being to sit and listen, I think it's up to you to respectfully draw the boundary, um, assuming that the other person, it, that the other person that you're also trying to help, is willing to help you in that way. Um, how, how do you mean? So you you know, assuming we're talking about caring relationships, whether it's a friend or a family member that you yeah, care about, just a neighbor, no somebody. Yeah, like someone you don't want to be hurt anymore. Um, just understanding that I'm I'm trying to think about three different things at the same time, so my brain is like going foggy at this point. <laughs> it's okay. But just really trying to meet them where they are, they are at emotionally. But if you are catching that they're what they're saying or disclosing to you is something that is escalating you where it's compromising your ability to remain in control, to respond instead of react. Uh, Let that be warning signs that maybe you don't need to receive this information and an appropriate boundary to set would be like, you know, first validate. Right. Oh my God. So if someone's telling you something, you're like, you know, a lot of times it's like, Oh my gosh, that's bad. That's awful. You know, refrain from judgment. So I usually say, People do it all the time, too, and they don't realize they're placing judgment. And they're like, I didn't judge. I just said it was bad. I'm okay. If it requires a good or a bad response, that's a judgment. Right. So validation, validation looks more like I'd, I'd react the same way. Right. So validation would look more, oh, my God. Like, so using the oh, my God statement instead of like, oh, my God, that's so bad. Instead, I would recommend someone saying, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you're going through this right now. This sounds like it must be very difficult and I'm concerned. I fear for you. I'm using I statements that are my feelings that if you don't talk to someone that this may escalate. And if it did escalate with Bob, let's just say, how would that look for you, Sally? Because everybody's situation would be different. Well, he's threatened to kill me. He's threatened to kill you wow, that's pretty serious. I mean, that's not something to take lightly and not something that everybody, anybody would just say to anybody on the off chance on any particular day. Yeah, it's not you a know? random statement. What do you, how do you feel about that? Do you think he would do something like that? How would he do something like that? And so instead of me trying to be like, 
that's bad. That's so concerning. You need to leave. You need to get out of there, Sally. He's going to do it. He's going to kill you. He's going to, you know, she already knows these things. What, instead of talking at her, instead ask her really good critical thinking questions, how, what, where, when, yeah. about helping her. So I'm taking her through the steps of, if it were to escalate, what, how would it be? What would you think you would use? Right. What would that look like? Because you're also helping her identify those risk factors that are also easily overlooked in the midst of an incident happening. So if you've previously talked about this with her, this is part of safety planning, trying to plan for something that hasn't happened. It may not happen, may never, never happen, but if it did happen, you've already been exposed to it once. So it would be more of a, if an incident's coming up, in your own effort as a victim, continue to respond in a state of crisis versus react versus retaliating against the abuser by means of weapons, verbally escalating it, you know, yourself, but offering aid. If you, and like I said, just politely drawing the boundary. Like if you feel you can no longer handle these conversations with them, I wouldn't recommend cutting that person off. Their abuser already does that. Yeah. And that's actually a goal that the abuser's working towards is that, you know, hopefully she doesn't have any friends. A lot of the times isolation's key. And that was a big thing in coronavirus. It's just, it's easy to isolate individuals now yeah. and financially exploit them. Um, Cause everyone has lost, you know, a ton of jobs over this. So just setting the boundary and saying, you know, you've talked about this with me multiple times. I'm starting to really get overwhelmed for you. And I don't know what to do about it that I may end up needing to talk to someone cause I don't know what I can do for you. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're not willing to, if anything, can I at least help you find someone that would be more appropriate to talk with you about this? Because though, especially professional or mental health professional, particularly those, I would recommend that you um, send that loved one to an outreach, a domestic violence outreach office of any sorts. There's, look them up. They're everywhere in Texas. Um, I'll provide some links for you. Okay, cool. And then the the national national domestic violence hotline, um, the one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three number. Um, you can always give them that. They can search that online. If you, it's www.thehotline.org. Also, and when you visit the site, there's always usually a link on these domestic violence sites that says ex exit or escape quickly. That's in case your abuser or perpetrator is nearby and they're monitoring your use on the computer. Um, typically, you can hit that. It'll, it'll um, erase it from cookies on your computer as, and, and out of your um, browsing history. Oh, that's too. Nice. So there's like safe components on these websites that um, are part of the safety planning too. So you can always reference your loved one to a website. Just sharing information is helping people, educating. I do it every day, day in and day out, educating people about what they're going through, about their options, about what the resources are and everything. That's helping. Um, I know it may be difficult to set a boundary with someone that you love by saying like, I you know, I can't, I can't hear you out anymore. You know, I reckon, I wouldn't recommend saying that exactly, but it's just more of, I'm just super concerned and I don't know how to help you or what to do next. And then just to keep encouraging them. But I think ultimately not cutting them off from you as a means of punishment for them, not leaving someone that you wish they would leave. Um, it really isn't enabling. It really isn't because they just, they also don't know what to do. And if you tell them what to do, then you're taking the position of an aggressor to them as well. Right. And you're really setting an expectation from, it's coming from another person now, and that really will lead them to feeling more isolated and yeah. less resourceful. Um, I will say besides the national 
domestic violence hotline. There's some apps now that you can download on your phone um, that are safety planning measures. And so there, there's one called Aspire, A-S-P-I-R-E. And when you click on it and you pull it up, it just looks like a regular news app. Oh, wow. You would never even know anything. It would You would never even know this on your phone. If I click on the sidebar and hit entertain or actually help um it gets into little hidden safety features in there that you can get to your phone and it makes like um quick dial features also or it can do automated text messaging too to those as part of your safety plan because there should be other individuals involved in your safety plan i do see that sometimes where victims didn't tell a soul didn't tell a soul about what was going on and i was that's part of um our processes to get them to eventually speak out to someone because the more you speak on it, the more real it is, the more valid and the more support that they're most likely going to get. Not all the time. Um, and I've seen churches like religion too sometimes side with aggressor and really encourage victim to stay with someone that she's not necessarily willing, wanting to stay with too. Like there's yeah, obviously different things. Yeah. Um, and I believe another safety app that victims could download, um, is my plan trying to make sure that's the actual name we're getting into the the second point that i wanted to end with was what can the victims do if they're hearing this somehow what are some of the things that you would suggest for them to do too so there's the aspire app and then there's this next app yeah, so that's going to be really similar to the feedback that I just provided about um, being a loved one and supporting someone going through um, intimate partner violence or any type of family violence, um, that national domestic hotline um, website and number, those two safety planning apps, um, those are really great starting points. I think starting there, I don't want to give out more information and go off on more tangents here and everything. I don't want to be overwhelming. That's not my intent. But to victims out there directly, um, this is very prevalent and happening on a day-to-day and maybe in ways that they're not aware of, too, that have shown itself, as I mentioned earlier, with that individual that wasn't even aware that she had been in an um, aggressive relationship pre- previously. Um but just bringing in awareness and connecting to others, um, realizing it, thinking critically about who you're with and what's healthy and what's not healthy is really what it, it, it boils down to. And we all need to make sure and take an accord that we're involved with those that have our best interests and, and would not you know, deliberately cause any type of harm to us physically, yeah. financially, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, any kind of way like that. Um, I think... That alone right there, too, is very hard. That's very hard if you're going through a situation like that and realizing that someone that you care very deeply about and love very much, and especially if you're married and have children and you're religious and that's very important to you and your family, the education piece is just where you need to start. It's all that you need to start. There's millions of people out there going through the same thing, both female and male. Um, So they're not alone. Same victims are definitely not alone. Um, there's a lot of important pieces that come into play to recovering from intimate partner violence, but it's not impossible. Yeah. And um, with the resources I've provided already, I would just start there, honestly. The really the it sounds like the advice for a victim is similar to starting your own business. Just get started. Mm-hmm. 
just start somewhere and start reading about it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a ton of self help books out there. Um, you know, even if you don't want to read on domestic violence in particularly, there's a lot of self help books out there. You know, Brene Brown does a lot on shame and compassion. She researches, she's a shame researcher. And so she does a lot of research on those elements that may be critical for um, any individual, really, but particularly victims to go ahead and start reading because that plays a part of your own involvement in being in an unhealthy or toxic relationship is where have I allowed these things or boundaries to be crossed? Where's my compassion and my self-love? And how do I start to implement that for myself and set the boundary to no longer be in situations where it has the potential to escalate to violence. Yeah. Um, and I think secondly, it's kind of a, it's not so much a tougher read more than it is just the neuroscience language can be kind of hard to understand if you're not accustomed to reading about the brain by any means, but uh, Bessel van der Kolk um, is one of my favorite trauma researchers. He wrote a book called the body keeps the score and it is so amazing, and it, any any creature that's living and can read should read this book, or at least go on YouTube and watch his videos and and listen to him speak. It's not ex- necessarily exhilarating more than it is just like, aha, well, that mm. makes sense. And he talks a lot about trauma in a physiological response and how that triples out and affects the rest of our lives. And I'll, I'll just say that about it, but it's a fantastic read um, to help victims understand in the middle of trauma or the way that trauma can affect our decision-making process that has allowed us and created conditions or compounded them for us to ultimately end up in an unhealthy or toxic relationship. And so I only speak on all of those points just so that victims don't internalize or shame themselves still for their own per- personal characteristics of why they're in a violent relationship. Right. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's like it's not you, you're not a fortune teller. How would you be able to tell the future? You know, and certainly if you could have, you would have never made this decision. Obviously, you know, yeah. obviously, you know, I don't think you actively want to be harmed, and by any means, on it, especially on a daily basis. But, um, yeah, that's awesome, Tabitha. You've been fantastic. I mean, don't don't feel afraid like you went off on tangents or whatever. I think that, <laughs> I think that the information. <laughs> Would you want a topic or a topic? This is this has been really special and it, it means something to me. Uh, well, I, I want you to. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity in this space, um, primarily not for my own platform, but for a platform for victims right now um, in the current pandemic environment that we're going through. Yeah, this is this is a uh, unique to say the least, but. Um, but that's it, guys. Uh, whether you're a victim or maybe if you know somebody, you can check out the show notes. There will be links for resources that will be helpful. Also, you can go to uh, waacidea.com, and there you will find a blog with more helpful information that I couldn't put in the description, just in case your phone is being monitored. I don't, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But... uh Tabitha, thank you. Your yeah, time, your time is really so valuable. Much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Have a good one, guys.